between events and their meaning, events and their fulfillments. It's certainly doubtful that individuals who were brought out of Egypt in the Exodus recognized that their lives and the events that they were undergoing pointed to Christ and the events that he would accomplish in a second Exodus. The Jews, of course, had reflected on the events of the Exodus. They became the backbone for their theology. And their significance was perceived by them. But it was their interpretation of their fulfillment that proved to be miles off. When Jesus fed 5,000 men with five barley loaves and two fish, the crowd rightly wondered out loud, is this the prophet that Moses spoke of? They wanted to rush and to make him king, but Jesus rebukes them because they are not really motivated to come to him because of the promises of God. They are motivated to come to him because they ate and their bellies were full. And so Jesus, as he begins his, his first point to his bread of life sermon, which we looked at the introduction last week and we'll continue the next three weeks to look at the rest of this sermon as it unfolds. In this first point, he gives them sort of a master class on typology. He helps them to understand the significance of the Exodus, of that event, and specifically of feeding his people with manna from heaven, which we just read from Exodus 16. But both of these find the apex of their meaning in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus has not come to give physical bread. He's not even come to give manna. He's come to give his life. He's come to give himself to his people. He is true bread. And as John earlier had showed that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So if you are able, please stand with me as we read from the gospel according to John. We stand out of reverence for the Word of God. We're going to be reading from John 6, verse 30 through 36. We remind you that these are the words of God. So they said to him, that is the crowd, said to Jesus, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness... As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have given us the true bread from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and as his life is on full display in these words here today, may we not be those who see and do not believe, but may we be those who see 
your glory shining in his face and come to him to have all our hunger and thirst satisfied. For in him is true life and may we be found in him. We pray this in Jesus' name and amen. You may be seated. Remember that in the introduction to his discourse, this crowd has uh, followed Jesus out into the wilderness retreat he had with his disciples, and he feels pity for them. They're like sheep without a shepherd. So he tests his disciples, how can I feed them all? How can we give them enough? Drawing faith out from them. And out of five loaves and two fishes, he feeds 5,000 men. And the crowd is satisfied. They're filled. And there's leftovers. And then Jesus departs because they want to force him to be their king. They want bread all the time. They want it, they want it under their circumstances, not under God's. And so Jesus retreats up into the mountains. The disciples spend the night crossing the sea until Jesus joins them again, miraculously walking upon the waters. And then, as they come to the other side, the crowd puzzled. How did Jesus arrive here? They find him in the synagogue. And they ask him, when did you come? And he begins this sermon with his introduction, drawing them to see the problem behind their motivations, why it is that they are seeking Jesus. What's drawing them to Jesus? Is it faith? Do they really want to trust in the Messiah, or is it because their bellies are full? And Jesus searches their hearts, and they're not quite understanding what he says, and so they're skeptical of his remarks about their motivations. And in, with great irony, they demand that he give them a sign To prove he is the prophet like Moses. Verse 30. And they even attempt to ground their request in Scripture. Verse 32. But as Jesus made clear in his last confrontation with the Jews, they search the Scriptures because they think that in them they will find eternal life. And it is them, the Scriptures, that bear witness about Jesus. And so appropriately, the Word of God interprets the word to them, explaining the significance of Moses and the manna, verse 32 to 33. And even this they misunderstand. And they plead with them to give them this kind of bread. Verse 34, prompting Jesus to unveil that he is the bread of life. And the only, that only by coming to him by faith can their hunger and their thirst be satisfied. Verse 35. And finally, he insightfully diagnoses their problem. They see with their eyes the true bread from heaven that has come to give life to the world, and yet they still do not believe, meaning they do not have faith. To unpack the significance of Jesus' first major point in this Bread of Life sermon, we were going to take a tour through the significance of the events of God feeding Israel in the wilderness. And what conclusions that Israel should have drawn from that event. And why it is ironic that they insist Jesus prove His authority with a sign. Secondly, we'll connect 
these wilderness events with their fulfillment in Christ and end with Jesus' denouncement of their failure to see with eyes of faith what was right in front of them, what they could touch, what the apostle says we handled, we saw, we beheld his glory. But they want him to prove it. Show us a sign. And I've tried to clarify that in reading through John's gospel, we are not getting, we don't want to get puffed up with pride as we look at the way the Jews respond to him. John is not writing it just so that we can bash on the Jews and their response. For given their position, we would doubtless do the very same things. And in many ways, we continue to embody their behavior in our own behavior, despite the clear teaching of Scripture. John is, however, keen to, on using irony to show the absurdity of unbelief. How ironic is it when you are faced with the one who has created you and you demand of him that he give you a sign and prove that he is the one who has made you. By the way, that's not a great idea to do. Jesus actually had already given them a sign, had he not? Had he not given them multiple signs? Has he not healed the man who was lame for 38 years? Did they not see it? Did he not fill them till they were full and there was leftovers? Did he not turn water into wine? Did he not heal the official son? And these are just the ones that John decides to highlight for us. There were hundreds or thousands, maybe millions of other signs. As John says, the the world cannot contain all the books to explain all the signs of Jesus. And yet they demand a sign. Essentially, and it's interesting, it shows up in the grammar because he says what they ask him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to Him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Do you see how they're connecting it? They're saying, You're telling us to do the work of God. Can you do the work of God? Do the work of God and show us an example of how that's done. Essentially, they're saying the bread was good, but it's not good enough. The ministry of the original prophet Moses was attended by the giving of bread from heaven, not in one meal, but for 40 long years. You gave us one meal. That's not a sign. We want something greater than that. You, if you are the prophet that Moses spoke of, then prove it. Show us something that really points to that. But Israel in her wilderness wandering was just as dull in seeing what the manna was intended to teach. It was certainly not to testify to the greatness of Moses. As Jesus emphasizes, it was his father, his father that gave his, their fathers the manna. It was God who fed them in the wilderness, not Moses. And two lessons were often missed not by Moses, but by Israel in the giving of the manna to eat. First, 
It was given to test Israel, to see if they would depend on God. And secondly, the nature of manna was intentionally temporary. It wasn't intended to last forever. So first, the test of manna. Deuteronomy 8.3 You men, we looked at this yesterday. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but, by, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Israel was having a tough time trusting God, depending on God. Moses had run on a platform of liberation. <laughs> and he delivered them from ex, from Egypt and then... All of a sudden, the resources are not there. They're not connected to the big city any longer. They don't have the meat pots with the leeks and the onions and the good stews and all the Egyptian restaurants. And instead of leading them straight on, they take a winding, circuitous route. And it was a wandering through a route that was desolate, a path of hunger and thirst stripped of all natural resources in a barren desert so that Israel, hungry and thirsty, would learn to rely on God. There was no water and there was no food. So God gave them water from the rock and manna that fell from heaven. Why? To test them and see if they would trust Him. Would they depend on Him when there is no food? When there is no water. When you cannot be self-sufficient. You cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps and say, I got this. When you have to rely on someone, who is it? Who will it be? Uncle Sam? How many of you can identify with this kind of situation? Have you ever felt that God was bringing you through the most awkward route? Maybe you've looked back at your life, you're like, why did you take me through that? He's trying, he's trying to get you to see that it's not on your own strength that you will accomplish His purposes. Somehow God brought water for you out of the rock In the midst of those times, you can look back and you can see that God was actually right there with you. And in the midst of it, He was even sustaining you. It might have been meager and you might have wanted more. Just as for Israel, it was never about water and bread. It was about whether we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You think that it's all about you That if you don't see to it, no one will. But it's not about you. It's not about you accomplishing your purposes. It's about you depending on God. He will use all kinds of creative situations to break you of that kind of thinking. You will pass through the flood and through the fire until you learn to depend on God. That may be the incurable pain of sickness, losing a loved one, 
financial hardship, social pressure, persecution, famine, whatever your wilderness experience may be, I can assure you that it is not punishment. It's not punishment. It's discipline. Because God will not let you try to be self-sufficient. He will disabuse you of that notion. And He will work reliance on Him in you. Trust and confidence. Because you know, "Ah, I can't do it. I can't even get out of bed. I need you. And He wants all your trust and confidence to be in Him alone. But also, the manna was to be temporary. It was never intended to be permanent. As Chaucer said, all things must come to an end. The manna was never intended to last forever and ever. It carried Israel through the wilderness until they reached the promised land which was dripping with milk and honey. Manna wouldn't last beyond the wilderness, and except on the Sabbath, it would also not last beyond the day. He only gave them enough manna for that day. And they tried to hold it over for the next day, and what happened? It rotted. It got worms and it stank. And they were commanded to gather just enough. And those who gathered a lot, they didn't have anything left over. And those who gathered a little, they were never hungry. That's the provision of God in the wilderness. Just enough. Just enough to get you to the promised land. God literally gave them their daily bread. To test them for sure, but also to point to something better. Something that had enduring qualities that would last beyond one day. Beyond just that time when you're in the wilderness. It would last for all of eternity. The Jews are reflecting on Deuteronomy 8.3 and the fact that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. They identified the word of God, the Torah, with the manna. The Torah was the true bread from heaven, they said. But what Jesus is suggesting, and it takes the, next, the rest of the whole New Testament to flesh this out, is that the Torah was temporary too. The law was given to Israel. It was unique. It set them apart as a distinct people. It separated them from the nations. And those aspects of the law that were unique to Israel were temporary. They were put in place until the Christ would come, not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Like the manna would feed Israel until they reached the promised land, so the Torah would feed Israel until Christ, the Messiah, came to accomplish what the law always pointed to. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, John 1.17. Like the manna which was fading away, so too was the Torah. Neither of which were the true bread from heaven. It is the Father who gives this true bread, unlike Moses, whose ministry was fading away. The glory of it was fading, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. But the bread that God would give would be life to the world. 
Remarkably, in surveying the events of the Exodus, Paul concludes something that Israel should have seen. And I think he is reflecting on what Jesus taught right here in this sermon. And that is that the bread from heaven and the rock which was given to them in the wilderness during the Exodus was Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. There's infant baptism for you right there, right? Everyone is baptized through the sea. Children are not excluded. That's just for free. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Do you see that? God gave them Christ to satisfy their hunger and to quench their thirst. And Paul draws that directly from verse 35 when Jesus exclaims, I am the bread of life. It's me. I'm standing right in front of you. Paul makes that typological connection from those events which all pointed to Jesus Christ. They're like blinking neon lights. And they body forth in shadowy form Jesus Christ. They show Him to His people. Just like Israel, the crowd was given bread from heaven. Jesus fed them until their bellies were full. Yet this was to test them, just like the manna. Would they trust in the one who is the bread of life? The one who would give them life eternal? Scholars and commentators count seven I am statements from Jesus' lips. I am the bread of life here in chapter 6. I am the light of the world, chapter 8. I am the door, chapter 10. I am the good shepherd, chapter 10. I am the resurrection and the life, chapter 11. I am the way and the truth and the life, chapter 14. I am the true vine, chapter 15. Several of these I am statements are also connected with the signs that John has included. And here he connects his sign of feeding the 5,000 with the proposition, I am the bread of life. It's harder to see in English, but the Greek is emphatic. It says, I, yes, I am the bread of life. You don't need to say I twice, but it's included in the text to show that it is I am. I am is the bread of life and he's standing right there in front of them. They're meant to draw the connection to when God revealed himself to Moses as the great I am. Yahweh, the self-existent one, the one who is, who was, and will be forevermore. The one who can sustain you in the wilderness because he never runs out. He has inexhaustible resources. And his character is unchanging. He's timeless and eternal. And we put all this together. We put all this together. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying the Father has given you the true bread from heaven. Me. I came down from heaven to give you life. I will do that by giving my life up in death. So that in my death you may taste life. 
Since my life is of infinite worth, I can offer it to redeem you from sin, bringing you out of bondage and slavery of sin into the promised blessing of eternal life. And like bread gives you life and manna sustained your fathers in the wilderness, so too will I give my life to all who come to me. And those who do, those who do will never thirst and they'll never grow hungry. For I can satisfy in ways that bread and manna only pointed to. And if you come to me and if you believe in me, I will give you that life. But sadly, his his sermon doesn't end there. Before wrapping up his his first point, he, he he says the most convicting thing that we could ever hear. The crowd wants a sign. They want the bread that comes down from the Father and gives life. But Jesus says, you see me and you still don't believe. I am the bread of life and I'm standing right in front of you and you don't believe. How can you ask for signs and claim that you want the bread of heaven when I'm standing right in front of you? As one commentator said, they have seen only bread and power not what they signify. They have witnessed the divine revealer at work, but only their curiosity, appetites, and political ambitions have been aroused, not their faith. In the Gospels, seeing and not believing is tantamount to a refusal to believe. And the warning is for us too. Will you merely look at me? Won't you come to me? And coming implies repentance. For to come to Christ, you must give up your pursuit of just bread. Meaning you must stop pursuing all the things that you think will quench your thirst and satisfy your hunger. For Christ will have no competition so long as there is something else occupying your hunt for satisfaction then it can be said of you that you see, but you still don't believe. Sometimes a warning is more powerful than a promise to get stubborn hearts moving. And I know for me, framing it this way confronts my own empty pursuits. For in my endeavor to be a good pastor, it's easy for me to subtly think I can somehow feed you from myself. But I will never be or know or do enough to satisfy your hunger ever. And my sin is that I try. And your sin is that you still think that I should. I am not Christ. Your husband is not Christ. Your wife or children are not Christ. The next great candidate is not Christ. A new car is not Christ. A better house or job is not Christ. More friends on social media. Not Christ. Losing weight is not Christ. Getting ripped is not Christ. All the things that we pursue instead of Christ, none of these can satisfy your hunger. Nor can they feed you in a way that will satisfy your hunger forever. So faith is coming to Christ for all that He offers to you. Coming daily for just as you must eat daily, so you must come to Christ daily for food that never perishes. 
He is your daily bread. And just as you come hungry to the table, so you must come hungry every day to hear the word of Christ, relishing every word and savoring every promise, even swallowing down the law's threatenings, because you know they fortify your diet and driving you back to the sweetness of the gospel. And if you are what you eat, then feast on Christ. And let His life satisfy your hungry souls. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we hunger for You. We thirst for You as in a dry and a weary land. We confess, Father, that we have tried to satisfy our hunger with myriads of other things. And we confess also that none of them have satisfied us like you. Who draw us to you. Call us to come and we will come. And feed us to the full. May we be satisfied in you. May we draw deeply from the wells of our salvation. May we feast Because we know that you who have offered your very life to us have promised to be our satisfaction. And may we rest in that. And may we come daily and prepare us to come to your table now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.